Again, this morning, looking at Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Uh, In Jesus' compassionate use of power for two ladies. As Daniel read for us, we see Jesus coming uh, back from the shore, or back to the shore, rather, a crowd gathering about him, a father coming to him, pleading, a woman interrupting his travels to this father's house, and then Jesus going to the house and raising the young girl from the dead. Uh, Maybe a story you're familiar with, maybe you're familiar with both, uh, and now seeing them here together, sandwiched in the Gospel of Mark with uh, the healing of the woman with the discharge of blood, how the Bible describes it, uh, and the raising of this little girl from the dead together. This is an amazing display of Christ's power, and it is placed at a series of displays of Christ's power. If you remember the context, if you look at your handout as we're working our way through the book of Mark, uh, we are dealing with the last of three miracles, well, four if you count these as two, miracles that Jesus does that Mark records to display his power. The entire gospel of Mark is written for the purpose of us knowing and understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ came to save sinners and that he in grace and kindness lived a perfect life in the place of those who put their trust in him. And that he then in that perfect life was crucified innocently but gruesomely destroyed by the Roman Empire. And under the grace of God, Isaiah tells us it is not just the Roman Empire, but God's hand that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, that he might make many righteous. God had prepared and he had proclaimed that a Messiah would come to save his people. And that Messiah has come and it is Jesus Christ. And he has shown that he is the Messiah, not in just coming and living a perfect life as an example for you, but dying that you might be saved, that your sin would be paid for. And not just dying, but rising again from the dead, declaring that he had the power to do so, that he has defeated death. And so from that day and prior to that day, there is the proclamation that the kingdom of God will save the people of God for the glory of God, and they will be with him forever. And the gospel is the recording of the time that that has been fulfilled. This particular gospel written by Mark is recording that. If you look at your handout, you'll see in the very beginning of this gospel, we have Jesus's message of the gospel and he proclaims, what ought we to do? He says, the time is fulfilled. The promises have come about. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent. Turn from your sin and put your complete trust, your complete dependence, your complete obedience, all of your belief in the gospel, in the message of Christ, in the promise of God to send a Messiah. And then from that point, we have not just the stated fact that the gospel is being fulfilled, but the power of Christ displayed. As he taught, as he instructed, as he prepared his disciples, as he proclaimed the truth and proclaimed his power. And so we looked last week at uh, the second of the four here of his displays of power. The first was he commanded the storm. There was a great storm. The disciples are terrified. They see what's going on. They ask Jesus, do you not care that we are dying? And Jesus immediately calms the storm. That He is sovereign in his power over all nature. After calming the storm, he, if you remember, lands in the nation of the Gerasians or a Gentiles that live on the other side of the lake in which they're crossing, gets out of the boat. And after he is trying to rest, he had been healing and preaching all the day prior. He comes to the shore and is immediately affronted by a demon possessed man uh, who is possessed in such a way that is not common even among the demon possessed. He makes an amazing display of his power over sin and darkness. And then here this morning, we see in verses 21 through 43, his power over death and disease. I just want you to consider the fact, if you had power, and when you have power, how do you display it? 
What do you do to display that you are the authority, that you are in charge? Throughout history, there have been many things to display that. Many nations have great parades of all of their military power. They do tests to show their military power and strength. They put it before people. They build amazing structures to display how great they are. I often think of the pyramids of Egypt to declare how great they are. And yet they would be put in there when they're dead, never to rise again. I think of myself as a parent, if I wanted to declare how great and powerful and authoritative I am, I start yelling, Avery Michelle Dietrich, what do you think you're doing? Right, I gotta get my dad voice on. How do you display your power? When you have authority, when you are in charge, how is it that you show, I am in control here? And consider how Christ did that. He did not come to earth to make a grand display of his military power. He came humbled as a child to parents whom he created. He did not live a life that was grand and glorious in the beginning of his life. Most likely he probably just worked with his father, the created being of his, his stepdad, Joseph, probably doing all kinds of masonry and carpentry, living with multiple siblings who were pagans, just evil human people, and he's not. Probably mocked by them and ridiculed by them, laughing at him, frustrating him, causing him annoyance and anxiety, and yet without sin. And then, as he goes into his ministry, what does he do? He teaches with his mouth. And the primary display of his power is not some Aladdin genie in the lamp, you've never had a friend in me, let me just make everything pop out and appear and fireworks in the air. His primary display of his power is compassion toward the sick and the dying. Compassion toward the sinful and the demon-possessed. And clarity for the self-righteous and religious. He makes clear to all that they must depend upon him. He does not preach only soft words. He speaks clearly, repent, believe the gospel. He makes clear for the Pharisees and the Sadducees why they are not fair and they should be sad. He makes known the truth. But in displaying his power, the power that created all things, the power that spoke things into existence, how does he choose to do so? This passage today is an amazing example of that. He chooses to do so by curing a woman of a disease that has plagued her and raising a little girl from the dead. He displays his power not in some grandiose, aggressive, authoritarian way, though he has the power to, and he has the justice in him that would allow him. He could have come and destroyed everyone, rather than calling them to repentance. But he doesn't. Though he is tired and he is worn out, he has suffered little rest, He's just dealt with a crazy demon-possessed person, watched demons run 200 pigs off of a cliff. I'm sure he's exhausted. He's been kicked out of the city for healing a demon-possessed man. And now he returns to the other side of the sea, back into the Jewish people, and as soon as he gets there, he's immediately surrounded by a crowd. All crying out for him, all calling for him, all wanting something of him. The crowd didn't come just to stand there in an orderly fashion aligned. They're all coming to demand. And Jesus meets the demand of one man with a request. If you look down at the text, verses 21 through 24. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. And he was beside the sea. 
And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed and thronged about him. As you look at your handout, you see first, among a gathered crowd, Jesus is implored by a grieving father. Jesus is surrounded by the crowd. It says they thronged about him. This is not an orderly line to see Jesus. This is a group of people who don't have power, don't have medical services, don't have wealth. They are coming to him and they are there waiting for him to teach, waiting to see what he does, and most likely pleading with him and wanting from him many things. And Jesus hears the plea of one man, a father. Jesus is sympathetic to the ruler of the synagogue, Jarius by name. It's a great name. If you're having a baby boy, maybe you should name him Jarius. Jarius, people debate how to pronounce it, but... Jarius, not commonly is given the, the ruler of the synagogue. It could very well be that Jarius, because of this, was saved and was a well-known man and became known. And so Mark chooses to include his name to point out this Jarius, who it is. Could be that he just remembered the name and he included it. We don't really have why, but it's not common. Jarius, a ruler of the synagogue. You might not be familiar with the name Jarius or what a synagogue is, and so it's helpful to understand what does this mean that he's the ruler of the synagogue. The synagogue would be a Jewish place that they would gather for worship, to come together, to read scripture, to sing hymns, to pray, uh, to be taught, and to teach. And Jarius is the ruler of that, or the overseer of the synagogue. It does not mean that he is necessarily a teacher, but he is the facilities manager. He is the one that's making sure the facilities are taken care of, things are prepared, services are in order, uh, that people are coming. He is probably organizing the scripture reading. Remember, that the people don't have the scrolls of scripture in their hands. They're coming multiple times a week to hear the scripture read. And they are working through the scripture in an orderly fashion at the synagogue. And so he's the organizer over all of that. The way that you would come about to that would be you're probably a man of providence, a man uh, of, well, providence also, but prominence is the word I meant to use, uh, that he would be someone who is well thought of by those outside, that he is organized and faithful, most likely wealthy, uh, that he has time to organize and to do this and to make this go about. And it was often done by a plurality of men. But this one man, Jarius, is a ruler of the synagogue. And so as the people are thronging to Christ, they're thronging to Christ. Why? Well, as we've talked about many times, the crowds have different desires. They want to see what he's going to do. They want him to do something for them. They want to hear him teach. But it's just a crowd. Just a crowd running to him. But Jarius has a desperate plea. He's not just coming to be part of the crowd, right? Why is Jairus coming? You can see it in verse 23. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. Remember, Jairus is a prominent figure. He's probably wealthy. Whatever medical treatment would be allowed and whatever medicine could be accomplished and whoever could help locally, he probably has the means to do so. His wealth could make him think that nothing bad could happen. From Luke, we learn that this is his only daughter and that she is about 12 years of age and she's dying. His wealth, his prominence, his position in the synagogue cannot save her. Death does not care about how much money you make or how much money you lack. Let me read you a quote by J.C. Ryle. I think is very helpful. He says, Jerry's probably had wealth, and the medical help and the wealth can command. Yet money could not keep death from his child. The daughters of rulers are liable to sickness, as well as the daughters of poor men. The daughters of rulers must die. It is good for us to remember this. We are too apt to forget it. We often think and talk as if the possession of riches was the great antidote to sorrow. 
as if money could secure for us against sickness and death. But it is the very extreme of blindness to think so. We have only look around us to see hundreds of proofs to the contrary. Death comes to halls and to palaces, as well as to cottages, to landlords as well as tenants, to the rich as well as to the poor. It stands no ceremony. It tarries no man's leisure or convenience. It will not be kept out by locks and bars. Is it appointed for men to die once? And after that comes the judgment. All will die. But it is not common, though it was far more common in the early world, for children to die. It is not expected. It is not hoped for. It is known that all will die. But the death of a child is always heartbreaking. Because while death always reminds us, death should not exist. While anyone dying reminds us this is not the way it should be. The death of a child is extreme in its reminder. Because though we know all will die, we do not assume we will die when we are young. And having only one daughter, Jairus is probably grieved beyond what we might think. This is his only little girl, as he calls her. And so he pleads with Jesus. He begs him. And Jesus willingly goes. Jesus goes with Jairus. And so as we would expect, then Jesus goes and goes to the house to heal the little girl. But in all of the Gospels that record this story, there is an interruption in this story. While Jesus is surrounded by the crowd and he goes sympathetic to the ruler of the synagogue to heal the little girl, as Jesus shows his sympathy, as you heard and will hear again, among the surrounding crowd, he is interrupted by a suffering woman. Look with me at verses 25 through 34. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed. And Jesus perceiving that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Among the surrounding crowd, Jesus is interrupted by a woman who's been suffering for 12 years. 12 years is a long time. It's also the amount of time that Jairus' daughter has been alive. For all of her life, which has been a joy to Jairus, which has been a great treasure to him, which he has grieved that he might be losing, this woman has lived a life as a woman in Israel, completely cast out. You can look in the book of Leviticus. There are lots of laws about when women have a discharge of blood. That's as descriptive as I'm going to be for the sake of your children. You know what I'm talking about. And as this is going on, the, the laws would be that there are particular rituals that must be carried out. There's particular function that must go on and that that woman would be unclean in a sense that she should not be touched by a man uh, and that she should wait for her discharge to pass. Uh, it's a real interesting read if you want to look in your Bible. Leviticus uh, 15, I believe, is where it's at. And so you can just take a little gander there later just for family devotions. <laughs> But this woman, and the whole Bible, guys, the whole Bible is good for teaching and proof and correction. So 
Leviticus 15. That's where you got to be tonight. But this woman has been cast out. She's been suffering and lonely, not treasured and taken in. She's by herself in this. We have all assumptions she very well could not be married. She's alone. Uh, it is unlikely that a man would choose to be with her in, in her present condition. Could be that there is a, a faithful man behind her. It's all speculation. We don't know. But she is desperate. She has spent 12 years, no short amount of time. And this woman has suffered. Look at verse 26 and you will see the describing verbs of her life. It says, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under the hand of many physicians. It's interesting to look at the difference in the way Mark states this and the way that Luke states this. Here's what Luke says in verse 43 of chapter 8. He says, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and, the, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Mark's a conspiracy theorist. These doctors are just causing her to suffer. Luke literally is a physician. She spent all her money, but they couldn't help her, right? I just thought it's interesting in our present time uh, that Mark and Luke both approach the same situation and they're dealing with the physicians and Luke is rather sympathetic to them and Mark is like, these fools took all her money and they couldn't even do anything. They just made it worse. But the point here is not what the physicians did. The point is that the physicians could do nothing. And medical treatments are suffering. Whether you're a conspiracy theorist or not, uh, man does not know what to do. There's a reason they call it a practice. They're practicing. They don't know. They're not God. They can't fix everything. And Mark and Luke are both making the point, this cannot be fixed by the hands of men. They cannot fix this. Let me clarify for our present time, not just the hands of men. This isn't about the evil patriarchy. It could not be fixed by the hands of women either. There were no hands on earth that could fix this. She suffered a great deal and she sought every earthly opportunity until all she had was gone. And yet she still suffered. She spent everything is the next verb. She spent all she had and she was not improved, no better. Rather, she grew worse. She had been suffering and spending with no results, no better, actually getting worse. But she heard something, right? It says, she heard what Jesus had been doing. She heard the reports of Jesus and who Jesus was. And so she came to him. She went to him. She had hope that this could fix it. This alone is incredible to me because she could have been so cynical. She could have been Mark. What's going to happen? I'm just going to give him even more of what I have and nothing will be fixed. And yet in desperation, because of illness and the agony of it and 12 years of it going on and her being cast out, she is desperate to try anything. And she goes to Jesus. She goes to Jesus. She does what is now an act of dependence and desperation. She feels as though all other things, because all other things, as much as we can tell, have been tried. And she's none the better. Verses 27 through 29 tell us, She heard what the reports of Jesus were. She came up behind him. She touched his garment. For she said, Even if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt her body that she was healed. While she could have been callous and faithless, she somehow had enough faith, enough belief, enough dependence, enough desperation to say, I will go to Christ. I've heard what he does for other people. She did not say, well, he won't do it for me. She took what little faith she had, and she ran to Christ. And in verse 30, we see Jesus perceives what has happened. He knows what has gone on. And Mark's favorite word, immediately he turned about in the crowd and he said, Who touched my garments? 
Luke tells us that she could not remain hidden. It says when she knew she couldn't be hidden. He says, Jesus says, who touched my garments? This is like God in the Garden of Eden going, Adam, where are you? He knows. He's not confused. He's asking for Adam. This is why when you ask your children, because you watched them steal the candy off the shelf, son, do you have a lollipop? Right, my oldest kids go, you already know the answer. So did God when he was talking to Adam and trying to make a point. <laughs> Giving you an opportunity. He asks, she knows she cannot remain hidden. And so what does she do? She comes out and she tells the whole story. She lays it all out. And I think we hear this and, and we think, of course, that's what she would do, right? Is that what you do when you're caught? You just give enough information to get by, and you might think, why would she hide anything? Jesus has healed her. This is a woman who is unclean, who's not supposed to be near crowds. She's not supposed to touch other people of Israel. She is considered defiling in this state, and she is to stay away and be cleaned and not be there. Just like a man who would have slaughtered an animal or gone to war or other things, Israel practiced many things by the law that they were to behave in such a particular way until a particular time. And at this time, she should not have been where she was. She would be considered defiling to everyone she came in contact with. But Jesus makes a point. He cannot be defiled by your sin, your sickness. See, Jesus could have let her touch the garment and walked away in secret to be healed. She would know and he would know, but he wants to clarify for her and for the crowd what healed her. Was it a magical power in Jesus' garment? Should we search for such a garment and take it to the gynecological hospitals so that they could just touch it and be healed of any gynecological disease? Is this a magic gynecological healing robe? No. Jesus wants it to be clear. It is not the robe that healed her. It is the Christ in whom she depended, who she believed, whom she trusted. Whatever amount of faith she had, Jesus is bolstering that faith and making it clear. You have been made well. How? Because of her faith in him. The same word that is described in Jarius' belief, this is Pistos, which is a Greek word that means faith, dependence, belief. We see it translated as all three in our Bibles, but it means that in every place. Faith is not just to, to hope something would come about. Belief is not just to believe despite that. And dependence is just straight dependence because you hope and believe. And that's all happening in the same word, dependence and faith and belief. And whatever measure of this she had, Jesus is magnifying. And as she comes and she tells what Mark tells us, the whole truth, it's clear she shouldn't have been there. She shouldn't have done what she did under the law of Israel. But her actions can't defile the Messiah. And her faith, because of Christ, has made her well. And he states it to her in such a compassionate way. Daughter, my little girl. This is the only place in the Gospels Jesus uses this directed toward anyone. The woman who had been outcast for the whole life of Jairus' daughter, who did not feel the love and the affection and the closeness and the care and the compassion that Jairus' daughter felt in the house of the ruler of the synagogue, Jesus says, you are my little girl. And your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Go in tranquility. Go in knowing that there is no war against you. There is nothing to keep you away. You are reconciled. Not only to man, which is important for her here. She is back in society. But likely not forever. She's living in Israel. There will come times where she again is separated from society like all Israelites. And there will come a time when she will die. But Jesus in compassion heals her now, declaring his kindness, his grace, and who he is. He stops. 
And you see in verse 35, as he's proclaiming that she is made well, go in peace, be healed of your disease. As he's calling her his little girl, he overhears something. Verse 35 says, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house one, some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? I heard another pastor reference this, and I think he was right uh, in the way that this is stated. They could have quietly gone to Jairus and said, It's too late, sir. They say, Your daughter is dead. Why are you bothering him any longer? It's done. It's over. Their words are harsh, direct. They're telling the truth. Doesn't matter how they speak. But in comparison to how Christ is behaving, they, they lack a compassion. Notice even when it gets there, Jesus doesn't say, She is dead, and I'm going to rise her from the dead. He says, The child is merely sleeping. He uses different words, softer words, compassionate words. But these men come to tell Jairus, it's pointless, it's futile, stop now, your daughter's dead. Maybe Jesus looks exhausted, but don't trouble him anymore. Look at the crowd thrown about him. Don't make him walk all the way to the synagogue, to your home, to your daughter. But it says Jesus overheard. Look with me at verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came the, from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Apart from the crowds, Jesus is inexhonorable. I don't know if I said that right. I had to look it up. I was looking for an E word that could not be stopped. That's the one I came up with. Unstoppable was the other option, but it didn't start with an E and I'm a slave to alliteration. Jesus cannot be stopped. He removes himself from the mocking crowds. He gets there. Uh, she is dead, and she is far beyond the point of recognizing that she is dead because they have already had from the town gathered mourners. This would be a, a tradition of the people of Israel that they would have people come and gather uh, as a form of announcement. These people are professional mourners, and they are weeping and crying loudly. Maybe in compassion, they're, they're not just good actors, but they're character actors, and they're good at being sad. We, I'm not here to judge. They're already dead. God has already judged them. But they are there in a display, a ceremonial display, that someone has died. And Jesus comes, and he declares, why are you doing this? She is not dead, but sleeping. He, he says it like he's a rapper. Jesus isn't a rapper, but, but here he is. Every time I read it, I want to break into a rap song. But I'm not a rapper either. He says that, why are you weeping? The child is not dead. She is sleeping. <laughs> Just saying. If he wanted to be, he could have been. But that's not how he declared his power. Not with, with sick rhymes. He declared his power by telling them, depart, leave. I'm going to do something here. He tells them, go away, you are not needed here. In the, in the truth of the power of Jesus, she is not dead. She has not gone to judgment. She is dead in all the power of man. But she will be risen because Christ is not a man alone. Fully man and fully God in all his power. 
He overheard the conversation, and now he goes and he declares to Jairus, if you will only, what? Put your faith, your dependence in Christ. And Jairus has just stood there, maybe frustrated. My little girl is dying, and we're here with this woman who shouldn't be here. But rather than be able to express that, and maybe Jairus is a good and humbled man, and he's thankful for what's happening, and he's encouraged in seeing that, that Jesus is going to be able to do. Maybe he's not a cynic. Maybe he really depends and trusts in Christ, and he's watching him heal this woman and hearing the testimony and thinking she is safe. But whatever his state was, Jesus' statement is don't fear, believe. Don't fear, depend. Don't fear, put your trust completely in me. And they go. And Jesus doesn't make a grand spectacle. He removes the crowd while the woman and her plague in Israel is declared to all that they might know Jesus is greater than all your disease. Jesus is greater than all your illness. Jesus cannot be defiled by your sickness and your sin. Here for Jarius and the family, it is a small, quiet, intimate, compassionate resurrection. He takes her hand and says, little girl, arise, and she rises up. There's something interesting here that I didn't think about until reading it multiple times, and uh, at, rather as reading it multiple times, and then I, another commentator mentioned, and Jesus' first statement is, get her something to eat. Like he rose her from the dead, you couldn't put a sandwich in her stomach? <laughs> Why? Because she will die again. She needs to eat. She needs to go on living. She's 12 years old. She's gonna have a life. She's gonna go on with that life. And at some point in that life, she will die. She will live sustained by Christ awaiting. This resurrection is an amazing picture of the power of Christ, a compassionate display to Jairus and the family. But this is nothing like the resurrection of Christ. What she has been given is a gift, but it is nothing like the gift of salvation. His compassion to her is just a mere picture of the compassion of Christ's resurrection. This is not the defeat of death. This is the stopping of death. He cannot be stopped. He stops death in its tracks and raises this little girl. But death is not defeated in her because she will rise again. There is no resurrection like Jesus' resurrection. All who rose from the dead because of the power and the grace of God rose to die again another day. But not Christ. And in his grace and reminder that she must be sustained, sustain her, and Jairus' little girl rises up and walks, and Mark holding to this point, we had a spoiler, we already knew, but he says she was 12 years old, bringing the whole story together, that she has lived a life, the amount that this woman has been removed from life. And Jesus has had compassion on them both. Not just the power, but the grace of Christ a simple statement of his power. He was not too late because he reigns over death. Jesus didn't have to choose. Am I going to heal the woman or the little girl? He knows all things. He was not working in some middle knowledge where he's trying to make the best decision for all people. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent, means he knows all and he has the power to do all. He was not saying, I got a time limit, I got to get there by this point to heal this little girl. He shows compassion to the woman. And the interruption of the men does not thwart him. He merely tells Jairus, believe. He raises her from the dead. See, for us, such suffering in such life is very complicated. We probably, like the woman and like Jairus, ask the questions, how can this be fixed? How can this be made right? Our suffering confuses us. We come to the conclusion that God can do nothing. He doesn't care. Or God could do everything, but he just doesn't. Or that I'm too dirty and filthy, and that's why I'm in this situation, and I can't be cleansed. And here we see that he does care, and he can, and defilement does not keep Christ from you. 
So why suffer? And how can he do all of this at the same time? Well, let me help us to apply the complexity and the commitment of the power in Christ's compassion. Since Jesus made this grand display, he is displaying something for us. He is in control of all things. He is not bound by timing. It is not that he cannot show compassion to the little girl and the woman. He can do both. And in your life, you might often feel like, how can he be here in this? He's too busy for me. Or he's too burdened by me. He can't help me or cleanse me. And I've put it in my notes a few times and not gotten to it. I think we need this verse. 2 Peter 2, 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He knows how to keep all creation continuing and functioning in both declaring the warning of judgment to man that your sin is defiling, your sin is destructive, your sin does make clear you are not worthy before God. And in the trials of that sin, there are one of two things happening. A warning to you to be like Jarius, to be like the woman, not in that you can do what they did, but you can depend on the one in whom they've depended, Christ. When all hope seems lost, run to Christ. You are not too defiled for him. You are not too dirty. You do not mar his image. You have not done things so heinous that he does not know. He is good and kind and compassionate. He covers sin. He cannot remember what you are trying to forget in the words of you too. He does not hold his people's sin against him better than you too, the prophets. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgression from us. And yet we remain in this world, suffering like everyone else. What good is it? Look with me at Romans 5, 1 through 11. What is he doing? Because we think if he healed this woman, why can't he just heal me? Remember, this woman lived in this for 12 years. That's a long time. One-sixth of the average human lifespan now. Probably closer to a fourth of her life then. But for his glory and his purpose, her life was orchestrated to display his glory. Her suffering had purpose. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since our hope is in Christ, I'm reading from Romans 5, chapter 1. It's on the back of your handout if you want to follow along or in your Bible. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of glory. This is for all believers. Because of Christ, you have hope in Christ. You live in Christ. You rejoice in the hope of glory. Your sin has been paid for. And not only that, not only do we have hope of future glory, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Well, because there is something going on here. Suffering produces endurance. Right? America, even the prophets of your own time know this. The idols in which you worship, like Kelly Clarkson. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Thank you, Kelly. <laughs> Kelly understands. Suffering in this life does what? It builds endurance. The suffering of this life makes clear you can continue. Now, many are crushed by suffering and they say, I can't go on. And you could tell them, no, you shouldn't. But you could say, clearly you can. You are still here, right? It didn't kill you. It must have made you stronger. If their leg is broken, they can go on by being carried, right? There's solutions here, but they're not done. What you have suffered builds endurance. 
Because you suffered, you didn't die, right? We, we have a bumper sticker by other theologians of our time. But did you die? No. So you must be meant to go on. You can have endurance. I wouldn't listen to the theologians of our world. Kelly is confused about many things. But the reality that suffering builds endurance is just fact. You suffer, you can go on, therefore you do go on. And endurance builds character. As you endure, it solidifies within you the character in which you have. This doesn't mean it builds good character. For Christians, it does. But for all people, it builds character, right? Are you suffering as a crotchety, angry human? You will endure and go on, and your character will increase. You will become more crotchety and more angry. Suffering gives endurance that solidifies character. And it does so in hope. What if you're a crotchety, angry human? Well, your hope is that other humans will suffer, and you move on in that hope. You continue to say that. You complain and grumble about everything. You believe the faith of our current world. Suffering does give me endurance, and it makes me more of what I am, and I hate you. But that's not the process we see happen in the believer's life. Why? Because a believer suffers, and they endure in hope, and they grow in Christian character, God solidifies for them, and their hope is not shameful like the hope of the world. For their hope is different. Verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit to whom he has given us. He has given us the Spirit, and in the Spirit then we have hope and rest assured in that hope. He has given us hearts that will manifest the fruit of the Spirit, the character of God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. That this will grow in you as you suffer, as you endure. The character that will be manifest is the character of the Spirit of God. Why? Because the Spirit of God has been put into you by the grace of Christ. So Christian, you can have hope in all suffering. You're not going to become more crotchety and angry. You're going to become more humble, more joyful, more gentle, more patient, more self-controlled. The suffering has a purpose. And you say, how can I have confidence that he would do this? Well, one, he is compassionate and merciful. He does so. Look at verse 5, or rather verse 6. For while we were still weak, while we were unable, while you were like Jarius and his daughter, while you live like the woman who has been plagued by suffering, while you were weak, what did Christ do? He died for the ungodly. It says, while we were still weak, at the right time, the time has been fulfilled. Believe the gospel is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. At the right time in history, he came and he fulfilled and he did what he said. At the right time, he died for the ungodly. See, the Bible recognizes that you are weak. It recognizes that you are unable. It recognizes that you suffer. It recognizes that you need mercy. And both the woman and Jarius and his daughter were all in weak states and needed mercy, and Christ was compassionate. But they were in greater states than that. It is not just that they were weak. It is that they were ungodly. They did not know what to do rightly. Though they heard the law in their case, they did not know how to live out the law. They were sinners. They knew what God had said, and they were ungodly, unknowing how to live it out. And even in their attempts to live it out, what did they do? They sinned. They missed the mark. They couldn't go toward the goal. And worse, they were enemies of God. For many times in their life, they chose, I don't want to do what God says. They were rebels. But Romans 5, verse 6, gives us hope for while we were still weak, while you needed mercy, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. You tell yourself, I'm not good and no one would die for me. But he says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we stand saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, 
of God. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Christian, you're like Jarius' daughter. All of the grace and compassion that Christ has done in your heart is real and is true, and you still need a sandwich. You still need to be sustained. You're still going to suffer, but your suffering is not pointless. It is hopeful because Christ has died and he has risen not to die again. He sustains in all things. All of your suffering is purposeful in producing character, in making those intimate displays and those public displays of the grace and the kindness and the compassion of Christ who displays his power not in condemning you, not in destroying you, but in patience and grace imploring you, repent and believe in the gospel of Christ. Because he is kind and faithful and your defilement will not defile him, he has died for it. And your weakness will not go unnoticed. He is, has pity and mercy and compassion. And your sin is not uncovered. It is covered in Christ. And your rebellion and your life and knowing you do what you should not does not cause you to be rejected. But in love, he is reconciled in Christ. Run to him. Whatever little faith you have, whatever little hope you have, don't let the lies that your defilement is too much to keep you from Christ. Run to him because he saves the weak and the ungodly and the sinner and the enemy and he reconciles. Run to him. And like the woman, make it known. Tell others. Don't be fearful that your defilement will be shown. Declare to them the grace and the kindness of what he has done. Don't be distracted by the fear of the world. Believe, trust, depend, because he is good. Run to him. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. I thank you, Father, as... My emotion is high. It is not my emotion that shows your grace and power. I thank you, Father, as you are faithful and good and sending Christ. That we have that reminder and that hope, not in just this woman and the daughter of Jarius, but in a testimony of many around us. Pulled from sin from arrogance, self-righteousness, and evil, from drunkenness and prostitution, from hate and anger and slander, from murder, and you in grace and kindness at the right time died for us. I pray you would give us endurance. I pray you would help us to be faithful. I pray you would give us the confidence to declare not everything we long to say, but all that you have done in the gospel of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.